Sports Talk New York with your hosts Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is a Players Point production. It's sponsored by Prince Associates, the company you can trust for all your insurance needs, and the law firm of Decorator Cohen in DePrisco, specialist in line of duty accidents. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Our guest tonight is a former player, coach, and general manager in the National Hockey League, most notably with the New York Rangers. He got his start in the NHL with the Chicago Blackhawks in 1947. From 1948 to 1952, he was the backup goaltender for the New York Rangers. In 1945, he was the first goaltender to use a first baseman's glove with a cuff added to protect his hand and wrist. He would become the coach of the OHL's Guelph Royals before landing the head coaching job with the Rangers from 1965 to 1975. He then joined the St. Louis Blues and had two separate head coaching stints with them. He was a general manager of the Hartford Wellers from 79 until 1988. It is our pleasure to welcome to Sports to New York, Emil the Cat Francis. Welcome. Well, I'm very pleased to be with you, and uh, here we are in between Christmas and New Year's, and I want to take this opportunity to wish all your listening audience and hope they've had a nice Christmas. I want to wish them the very best in the New Year, a happy New Year, a healthy New Year, and uh, very nice to be with you. If they're Ranger fans, they're certainly having a very Merry Christmas and hopefully a great New Year with the Winter Classic uh, right around the corner. But let's talk a little bit about your career. Let's start with innovation that you clearly don't get enough recognition for. The equipment that goaltenders use has undergone quite a, a few style and design changes through the years. The pads and gloves are lighter and certainly more colorful than they were just a few decades ago, but probably the biggest change occurred in the late 1940s. Before then, the goaltenders basically wore the same type of gloves as forwards did. However, you came up with a better idea, and I think it had to do a lot with the fact that you had played baseball in the offseason. Can you tell our audience a little bit about how you actually changed goalie equipment forever? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, like, you know... uh... I was an infielder in baseball, and I, of course, in in the summer, that's how I made a living. I mean, I was very fortunate. I got paid to play hockey in the winter, and I played baseball in the summer. And at age 24, I became a playing manager in the uh, Canadian American League with Bismarck and Dickinson and uh, uh, Saskatoon, Regina, out in Western Canada. And I knew, like, you know, uh, the gold gloves that they had were terrible. I mean, it was a five-finger glove. And you had a little wee web, web uh, on the end that couldn't catch a toothpick, let alone a puck. And as a result, you know, your hand was always sore. So what I did, I took a, a George McQuinn model, and George McQuinn played for the Yankees, and I bought it, I think, for about $35. And I went back to train camp that fall, and I told the trainer, I says, get a guy to sew cuff on there. So I took a glove uh, from a normal hockey glove, and I sewed it onto my first baseman smith. Well, I got by for about two months. And we're playing in Detroit, and I'm playing with uh, I'm playing with uh, Chicago at the time, and uh, King Clancy, who's a Hall of Famer and a great player in his own time, uh, was refereeing that particular game. And in those days, like you know, the game started at eight o'clock, and you didn't go out at seven thirty and come back off. You went out at court at eight, and you stayed on. And the referees would come out, and they'd blow a horn, and the game would start. So out comes King, King Clancy. They blow the horn. And uh, Jack Adams is a referee for Detroit. He's, he's, pardon me, he's a coach and general manager. So he's pointing at me. And I see them all looking at me. So I said to myself, well, there can't be a goal judge. So I looked behind me and said, oh, no, there's a goal judge there. So down comes King, King Class. He says, let me see that glove you got. So I showed it to him. He says, you can't use that. I says, why? He says, it's illegal. I said, what do you mean it's illegal? Too big. I said, King 
That's my glove, and it's not too big. Well, he says, you can't use it. I said, well, if I can't use that glove tonight, you don't have a game. Because in those days, you only had one goalkeeper. He says, what do you mean? I said, I'm the only goalkeeper in the team. That's the only glove I got. If I can't use that, I'm not going to use any other glove. So he said, where do you go from here? I said, uh, Montreal. I'm going to call the President League. You take that glove and you go see him. So I had to go to Montreal to see Clarence Campbell. And he questioned me for an hour. Where did you get this? What did it cost? Who put that cuff on? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And he finally uh, uh, said, okay, from now on, you can use that. Well, you see the, the mistake I made. I didn't incorporate it. <laughs> and within within two weeks, like, you know, the story got out and showed pictures of my glove. And within 30 days, every company that manufactured gloves, uh, CCM, Rawlings, they all came out with those gold gloves. You see, except they're bigger, like, you know. So, I mean... I wasn't worried about it. I didn't even know what the corporate mean. I didn't even know at the time, like, you know, but I'll tell you, I knew that when I caught that puck in that first baseman's glove of mine, it never came out. And it was, a, that's why I had it. <laughs> it's funny that you really don't get the recognition unless, you know, true hockey historians know that fact, but it's a great story. Now, your NHL playing career consisted of 95 regular season games with the Chicago Blackhawks and the New York Rangers. But you played in 13 professional seasons in the National, American, United States, and Western Hockey Leagues. In 1952-53, you're named the WHL's Most Valuable Player and Top Goaltender. Your last pro game came with the last league's Seattle Totems in the 1959-1960 in the WHL. Uh, in all those years and all those teams, who was the most influential coach you had ever played under and why? I'll tell you what, and to this day I'll never know why. The best coach I ever played for, and I'll tell you who I played for, the greatest uh, line in Ranger history was uh, Frank Boucher, Bill Cook, and Bun Cook. I played for all three of them. I, I played for uh, uh, Muzz Patrick, played for uh, uh, his brother, Lynn Patrick. I played for a dozen different coaches, I would guess, during that career. The best coach I ever played for was a guy by the name of Clint Smith. I broke in with the Chicago Blackhawks, and he was at the end of his uh, career. He, was, he played on the 1939 Ranger team that won the Stanley Cup. He was a great player, the center. And he was 38 years old. Uh, from there, I was traded to New York, and we parted ways. And going back about five years later, I was uh, sent by the Rangers to uh, Cincinnati, and Clint Smith was a coach there. Clint Smith, to me, was the best coach I ever played for. He coached the Rangers Farm Clubs in St. Paul, coached the Rain Clubs in Cincinnati. And why and how he never got a chance to coach the New York Rangers, I'll never know. I mean, you know, I was just a player. I mean, how did I know? But he was the best coach I ever played for. I mean, he stressed conditioning. He stressed, uh, 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 he stressed uh, forward checking, back checking. He stressed how important that your special teams are, penalty killing, power play. He knew the game backwards and forwards. And how and why the Rangers never gave him a, a chance to coach, I'll never know. I'm playing for him in Cincinnati, and I remember we are going from the airport, uh, coming off a road trip, and we are all riding in the same car. And the news come on, and he was sitting in between me and the guy driving, 
and the newscaster said, the New York Rangers announced a new coach today. They're replacing Bill Cook, and they named the coach, and I'm sure that Clint Smith said, I'm going to be the next coach, and he wasn't. He finished the year as coach in Cincinnati. He went back to Vancouver and never coached a hockey team again. And I've always felt so bad for him because he was the best coach I ever played for. What what made him so so good as compared to all the other ones that you played under? And did you take a little bit of his coaching style with you when you went behind the bench? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I learned from every coach that ever played for me. And then, you know, the other thing I learned from too, because at 24 years old, I was managing uh, baseball clubs. I won seven championships in 10 years. I had eight black players for me. I had three Cuban players. I had five American players and four Canadian players. And I won, like, you know, eight championships in 10 years. And as a result, that had a lot to do with me. When there's only six teams and when I retired, I had uh, I had offers from three National League teams to come and join their organization. Because I'm sure they thought if he can handle all the guys he was running, he can handle anybody. So that helped me, too, like, you know, but, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, uh, I, I thought certain things that you you remember and you learn from everybody that you played for. And Clint Smith never once ever coached through the newspapers. And by that I mean, if I had a horseshit game, he never would have said, well, Fra- Francis was terrible tonight, that's why you lost. He'd get me the next day and say, no, here's what we're going to do and here's what we're going to have to look after. But I mean, you never demean a player through the newspapers. That's the worst thing in the world that you can do. Don't ever coach through the newspapers. And if I was to give anybody any advice, including my son who became the coach of the year in the National League, he said, Dad, what advice can you give me? I said, first of all, you got to earn the respect of the players. How you earn the respect of the players is by being fair and never coach through the newspapers. Never say that Joe Jones did this and so-and-so did that. That's what cost us a game. You call him in and you tell him exactly what you think. But never run him down through a newspaper because that's the worst thing. You lose the respect of not only him, but the rest of your team because they're saying, who's he going to get next? You know? And I learned that. I learned that from Clint Smith. He never did that. I learned that. It's very interesting because you do see a lot of the coaches doing that and, and throwing certain players under the bus on, on a nightly basis. Uh, after your playing days, you take over a coaching position with the New York Rangers sponsored Guelph Royals Juniors, yep. which would begin a 16-year association with the Rangers. You were groomed to be the bench boss of, of the parent club and ended up guiding the Rangers on three separate occasions. The first is when you take over for Red Sullivan. Actually, you appointed yourself because you were the GM at that point That's in the right. 1965-1966 season. What do you remember most about that first night stepping behind the bench of an NHL team? Uh, not really uh, too much on the fact that I thought that's where I should be because I knew I was going to end up there. I knew <laughs> I was going to end up coaching the National League. I knew because, I mean, I had studied the game. I would had all experience in the world, like, you know, as far as handling men. I had been in the Army. I lied about my age. I was 16. I was 18. I was a sergeant. I had platoons, and I was in the Army, and the war ended in Europe. And uh, the only war left was in uh, Japan, and the U.S. was in Japan. So I volunteered for that. So I won. I took all the American training, and I was all ready to go to Japan to fight that war, and the war ended there. And I was called in by the superintendent. He said, we'd like you to go to Kingston, Ontario, which is the west point of Canada, and we want you to 
take officer training to be a, a permanent member of the Canadian Army. I said, well, that's very nice of you. But I said, there's no war. The only reason I'm in here now and the reason I volunteered because there's a war. But I don't want to be a peacetime permanent <laughs> army. I said, no, thanks. Well, he said, uh, okay, he says, well, you think about it and come back tomorrow. So I can tell you right now, I said, you come back tomorrow. So what happened? This is funny. I come back the next day, and he wasn't there. The superintendent of the camp was there, and he said, we have a call from Moosejaw, Saskatchewan, and they know who you are and what you're all about. And they said they want us to send you back to Moosejaw to play hockey there, but you don't have enough points to get out of the Army. So here's your choice. Do you want to guard prisoners of war, or do you want to agree to go to Moosejaw and go back to finish your high school? I said, I'll go back to Moosejaw and finish my high school. And by going back there, they were a sponsor club of the Chicago Blackhawks, so I became the property of the Chicago Blackhawks, and that's how my whole career started. Now, we mentioned that you had appointed yourself because you were actually the general manager of the New York Rangers yeah. at the time. But on October 30th, 1964, you became the GM. And I'm not sure if this is your very first move or not because, as the story goes, the trade was actually announced later than it actually occurred. So you wouldn't have to protect this player in the June draft. So if this is your very first NHL trade, I'd say it's a pretty good move as you send four players to the Providence Reds for the rights to a goalie named Ed Jockerman. Yep. Uh, how did that trade come about, and how did you know about Eddie Jockerman? Well, I'll tell you, like, you know, uh, I had a guy that uh, played for the New York, uh, Montreal Canadiens, New York Americans, played even for the New York Rangers for a year or so by the name of uh, Johnny Marceau. And uh, he kept telling me, he says, you know, he says, there's a goalkeeper here in Providence, you've got to come and see. So I, would, I went down there all oh, four or five times, and uh, I watched him play like a lousy team. But Eddie was a oh stalwart and goal like you know he was getting uh, thirty five shots, forty shots a, a game, and that's how you develop a goalkeeper. You don't develop a goalkeeper behind a good team. If you want to de- develop goalkeepers, which I did, I'd put them with the worst team that I could put them with, so he'd get lots of shots and a lot of work. And I liked the way he was so determined. Like to me, he was a competitor. Like and so I said, Johnny, Johnny Ganyas, you watch everybody's coming in here. So finally, he said to me. After about a month, he says, Emil, you better get down here fast. I said, why? He said, Providence were an independent team. They were a farm club and nobody, and if you're going to make a deal, you had to make it with the owner of that team. So he said, I know there's Detroit coming in here Friday, and I know Montreal were in here last Friday, so you better get down here fast. So I called the owner, and Lou Perry was his name. He owned the team. He owned the rink. He owned the franchise. And we'd met already two, three times. And I said, you know, I'm coming down Friday night. When can I meet with you? I'd like to meet with you Friday night. So I can't meet with you Friday. I have another meeting, but I'll be with you Saturday morning. So what time? He said, 9 o'clock. I said, fine. So I go to the game that night. And now when I'm there, I spot this guy from Detroit. His name was Johnny Mitchell. He was the chief scout of Detroit Rebels. I knew him because I played with his son a lot in Cleveland. So anyway, I go back to the hotel, built my hotel, and I said, oh, I'm not going through the line. I'm going to the bottom floor. I did. I got in the elevator. I went to the first floor. Who do you think stepped on there? Johnny Mitchell. Hi, Ken. How are you? I said, fine, fine. So the elevator goes to the fifth floor. Where I, I got off, and he got off. So he comes up to me. He says, you know, he says, you're one guy. He says, I can really trust you. He says, I've known you for a long time. I'm going to ask you a question. 
Do you think Eddie Jockham could play in the National Hockey League? I said, Johnny, you're talking to the wrong guy, and I just left. I left him saying there. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to answer that question, so I left. Nine o'clock in the morning, I met with uh, Lou Perry. Now, before I uh, talked to Perry and we made that meeting, he said to me, he said, I have to build this franchise. And he says, I want you to bring the players pictures. And I want young players, I want to appeal to the Bobby Saxon. Bobby Saxon. So you bring the pictures of the players that you're saying that you're going to trade to me for Jockman. I said, okay. That's the funniest deal I ever made. Here I am in his office at 9 o'clock Saturday in the morning. I know that Mitchell's around. I know Canadians been in there like you. I got my arm full of pictures. He says, okay, who's the first guy? And I have to start off. This guy here. Oh, yeah, he says, he's a good-looking boy. Okay, we'll put him over here. That's one. <laughs> who's the next? I put the next guy down. Put okay, that's two. Here I am, trained with him for Eddie Jockman with pictures of the players that I intend on training to him. Like, you know, wow. God, I come out of there with a deal. Believe me, <laughs> I wasn't going to leave that office with a deal that morning. And I come out of there, I traded four players uh, uh, to Providence to get Eddie Jockman. And that was the best deal I ever made because he then was a, you know, cornerstone of the Ranger team for the next 10 years. Absolutely, and his number hangs in the rafters as tribute oh, to yeah. that. Uh, also in that same year, you make a very interesting move. You claim off of waivers, perhaps at that time, public enemy number one in the eyes of Ranger Nation, in Boom Boom Jeffreyon, who years earlier had turned his stick into a weapon against a Ranger at that time, Ron Murphy, uh, at that time a left wing for the New York Rangers. I'm sure at that time that that move was not a very popular move, but you did it for a reason, and I have heard you talk about this. Could you explain to our audience the thought process that went into claiming Boom Boom Jeffrey? on for the Rangers? Sure. I mean, I was trying to build a team. And uh, uh, Jeffrey on uh, had been with the Montreal Canadiens. And to go on the reserve list, voluntary retire list, you have to go through waivers. So the Montreal we only had six teams in the league then. They said, you know, we don't want any of you ever claiming Boomer Jeffrey on because he's been here and he's done all this and all their crap like it up. So they said, we'd really appreciate everybody giving us a courtesy waiver so he could go on the voluntary retire list without having to go through waivers. So everybody says, okay, okay, and it came to me, and I said, no, not for the New York Rangers. Well, what do you want? I said, I'll give you a pass, providing that if he ever tries to come back, he has to go on waivers. So they had a meeting, and they thought about that. They said, okay. So we give him a pass. But it was written in the minutes of the meeting. All right? So two years go by. He went to coach Quebec. Now I am in the process. You know, I got, I needed a guy to play the point in the fire play, and I needed a guy who'd been on a winner. So guess what? <laughs> Whose name comes on waivers but Boom Boom Jeffreyon? I claimed him right away. It was like uh, just after the draft meetings, was in June. So now I call him. I said, Boomer, how are you? Email friends. Oh, email, he says, you don't want me. I can't do this. I can't do this. He says, Boomer, I'm going to tell you something. You're now the property of the New York Rangers. And somebody's playing games here, and they're not going to play games with me. If you're ever going to play the National League game, you're going to play the New York Rangers. Do you understand that? You are going to play with us, or you don't play with anybody. <laughs> God. A week later, I flew up to Montreal. I met him at the airport. 
I spent three hours and I said, look, I need somebody who's been on a winning club like you. I think you can really, I've got a young team. I got, I'm building with a young team. I got Rod Gilbert and Jean Mattel, like, you know, and you're their hero to them. I need you to come with us. I'll put you on the power play, play in the point, you play right wing, and you're really going to help us. You understand that? And you're not going to play with anybody else other than us. So when I left that airport that day, I had him under contract. That's why he come to New York. And he was he was really good for our team. I'll tell you, he was a, he was a determined competitor. And, uh, you know, he gave us a lot of zip, like, you know, in the dressing room. He gave us zip on the ice. He really helped us. He really did. Very similar to what's happening here with the Rangers now. Under your tenure, we saw many young stars come along under your watch. You drafted such future stars as Brad Park, Steve Vickers, Pat Hickey, Rick yep. Middleton. Looking back at your tenure as GM, which draft pick is the one that you're most proud of? Brad Park. And why is that out of all the other players that you, you chose? Well, I mean, I think that uh, it was unfortunate for Brad Park that there's a guy who came in the league by the name of Bobby Orr. And Bobby Orr won about eight you know, uh, trophies as the best defense in the league. Other than that, Brad Park would have won them all. I mean, they were they were the two all-star defensemen. And Brad Park, unfortunately, came in at a wrong time. I remember, like, you know, uh, uh, Bobby Orr's first year in the league. And uh, they had the award of trophies at uh, Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens in the hot stove lounge. And, you know, the Norris Trophy and uh, all the different trophy members were there. And Harry Howell, in his 16th year of the Rangers, won the Norris Trophy. And Harry Howell got up there. And Bob Yor is 18 years old. And Harry Howell said, I'm so glad that I won the Norris Trophy this year because nobody's going to win it for the next 10 years. And how <laughs> right he was. Because you knew. When you, I mean, I'd seen Orphan the time he was 16 years old. And you knew that that's the kind of player he was going to be. And Harry knew it too. He said, and he won it. And nobody won it. And the forehead and got bad knees and got hurt. I don't know who would have won it for the next five years. That's how good he was. But Brad Park, to me, was the second best defense in the league. And that's why Brad Park was the best defense that ever played for me, ever. Now, there's always one guy that a GM picks, and, you know, because of his junior career or because of him being scouted, that for some reason or another never turns out to be the player that the GM envisions him being. Is there any one player that stands out in all your years that you thought was a can't-miss and then somehow just never translated into an NHL career? Oh gosh, that's hard to tell. Like you know, I uh, I can't really uh, off the top of my head pick one guy down that I was really disappointed in. Uh, that never turned out to be uh, you know a player that we thought he may be. I mean, some were better than we thought, and some weren't as good as we thought. But I mean, as far as pinpoint one guy and say, well, that guy was a flop. No, I really can't. Like you know. I can't pinpoint one player for that. Now, there were also some very memorable moments under your tenure, and while many of our younger fans remember the Stefan Matteau overtime goal in the playoffs against the Devils, you were behind the bench for a pretty memorable overtime goal yourself by Pete Stemkowski in what is still the longest game in Rangers history. The MSG Network special, the 50 Greatest Moments in Madison Square Garden history, plays that game, the Game 6 triple overtime winner at number 18 all-time. What do you remember about that 1971 semifinal game six against the Blackhawks and Stemmer's goal? If you were to ask me to name one game 
in all my career. That would be the game. Because the Chicago Blackhawks had us down 3-2 in the series with a sixth game in Madison Square Garden. We had to win that game because we had to go back to Chicago for the seventh game. And like you said, we went through six periods like you know, And finally, I mean, it was a great hockey game. God, there were moments that we could have won, they could have won. And finally, I went in at the end of the sixth period, and I go in the dressing room like, you know, I don't go in right away. You know, you give them a chance that players have to unloosen their skates because just their, their blood flows off and uh, give them a chance to breathe and relax a little bit. Then I came in like, you know, I said, for Christ's sake. I said, well, somebody put the puck in the net. We've been here all night. Somebody put the puck in so we could get the hell out of here. And some country right away, and he was a character, said, yeah. Somebody put the puck in there, it'll be too late to even get a beer. <laughs> it was exactly 1 o'clock in the morning. I always remember when the referees dropped the puck, I happened to look up at the clock at the garden. It was 1 o'clock. 30 seconds later, guess who put the puck in the net? Peter Stamkowski, and it was all over. That is a game that, as long as I live, I'll never forget in my life. It's a game I was the happiest. A couple people even died in Madison Square Garden that night. When I came through to go back to our room, there were stretches laid out there with blankets over people that had died during that game. All the concessions had been sold out. Yep. And my memory, as far as being involved in hockey, that was in Madison Square Garden. It was the greatest game I was ever involved in. And Pete Stemkowski, <laughs> he hit it right on the head. He said, somebody put the puck in there, it'll be too too late to even get a beer, and he put the puck in the net. <laughs> now, I have to assume uh, the peak of your tenure as a Ranger coach was reaching the Stanley Cup Finals in 72. What was that season like and the experience of being in Stanley Cup Finals in New York? It was great. You know, we went through a whole year in New York. We lost one game at home. Can you believe that? And we'd played in Oakland the week before, and we beat them 10-2, and they came back, and they beat us 8-2 right at Madison Square Garden. It's the only game we lost at home all year. That year, like, you know, was a come on, come on, because the year before, Boston beat us, but we lost John Rattel. We were leading the league, and he was leading the league in score, and uh, he passed the puck back to Dale Roth, Dale Roth shot, and hit John Rattel in the ankle and broke his ankle. We lost John Rattel. And, I mean, John Rattel was a key, key guy in our team. So I went out, and uh, Phil Goyette had finished up his career with the Boston, with Boston, or with Buffalo. I called Punch and like I said, Punch, I need a favor. He said, what's that? I said, well, you got Phil Goyette on your retired list. Like, you know, I said, uh, I don't know what you'd want for him. But he said, I really need him right now because if Rattel out, Phil Goyette knows exactly how our power play operates. Phil Grady was a real smart player. And he'd played a few old-timer games like, oh, but I knew that guy looked after himself. I knew. So uh, he said, okay. He said, tell you what. You got him. I'll take him off. Turn him over to you. He says, and somewhere down the line, he said, you could do me a favor to us. It sounds good to me. I got Phil Goyette. And Phil Goyette came right in, put him right in there. We beat out uh, Chicago. Uh, we beat out Montreal. We beat out Chicago. And then Boston uh, beat us out. But, I mean, you know, here we took them, you know, to six games. Well, the next year, I mean, losing the Stanley Cup, and especially losing it to the Boston Bruins, and they're parading around Madison Square Garden that Stanley Cup. I could have shot them all, thank you. But 
hey, you know, to the winners go the spoils. Anyway, the next year now, we go back to Boston. We play them in the first round. Those days, like, you know, you finish on Sunday night and we played our, uh, they had more points than us, so we had a start in Boston. Well, I took that, our team to a little town outside of Boston. We stayed there. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll tell you, we went in there and we were ready to play. We won the first two games in Boston. Come back to New York, they won the third game. We won the fourth game. We went back to Boston and beat them again. We beat them all three games at the Boston Garden. But the key to that whole series was uh, Ron Harris hit Esposito in the second game, put him out for the rest of the series. So we didn't ever tell they beat us. They didn't have Esposito. We beat them. So it goes to show you, like, you know, to win, you got to be good, but to win, you got to be lucky, and you got to stay away from key injuries. And the New York Rangers, we had the worst luck in the world. We always got key guys hurt in March that would hurt us later on in the playoffs, you know? So when I look at the Montreal Canes, they never had any key guys. The New York guys won four straight cups. They never had any key guys hurt. That's the key. you got to be good, but you got to be lucky to stay away from injuries. Injuries can kill you. And normally when you, you get injuries, it's always to your key guys because they play the most, like, you know? Absolutely. You know, you move on from the Rangers. You joined the St. Louis Blues in 1976 to become the executive vice president, general manager, and coach. The job you did in St. Louis really should almost be a college course as, as the model for some of these small market teams or the teams that complain about needing a new, range, a new arena. Because if I'm not mistaken, after a financially devastating 1976-77 season that saw the Blues pare down their staff to three employees, you were actually able to convince Ralston Purina chairman R. Hal Dean to invest in the team. You're able to rebuild the crumbling foundation. Ralston Purina repainted the old arena, which was uh, rechristened the Checker Dome. In the 76 amateur draft, you selected Bernie Federko, Brian Sutter, and Mike Liute, who would go on to become the cornerstone of the team in the 80s, and then added such runners and gunners as Wayne Babich and, and Ter- Perry Turnbull uh, were added to the nucleus. And by 1980-81, the Blues, under your guidance, set a franchise record with 107 points under Red Berenson, who to this day continues to turn out great talent, like the Rangers' Carl Haglund when he was the head coach of Michigan. Looking back at that accomplishment now, what goes through your mind, and when you see teams like the Islanders who, who say they need a new arena to be successful, what do you say to them? Well, <laughs> I think that the first and most important thing is to be successful on the ice and put a team out there like, you know, that commands respect and commands respect that somebody's going to invest some money in it and maybe come up with a new building, which you did in St. Louis. Like, But I'll tell you, that was the most trying times in my life. I mean, I knew. You know, I took the job there, and I, I owned, part of the deal was I owned 10% of the team. And the Solomons who owned the team at the time brought me into St. Louis to talk to the mayor uh, because they had promised the Solomons they were going to build a new rink. Okay, I went in the same before I agreed to the deal, and I met with the mayor. He said, oh, absolutely. He said, we want to build a new rink for the Blues, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. So I agreed to go there. There's only one problem. The election came in November. I went there in May. The election came in November. Guess what? The Democrats got beat. The Republicans took over. And they said, you're not getting nothing. <laughs> so now here I am with the team. On January the 1st of that year, I had let... 32 people go. Because the Solomons and myself, I was 
We own the building. I let everybody go, even going as far as the publicity department. I had nobody clean out the place. I said, pick up your garbage and take it home with you at night. I mean, I did everybody sweep out the joint, like, you know. And uh, anyway, I'm at a Cardinal football game. And now the Warriors out there were in desperate situations. So I'm there in the men's room at halftime. And I'm next to this guy, and I don't know who the hell he is. He says, well, my name is Hal Dean. I'm the chairman of the board of Ross and Prina. I didn't even know between you and I who the hell Ross and Prina was, like, you know. So he said, I understand that you people are having a tough time out there. I said, yes, we are. Well, he said, let me tell you something. I said, he said, the St. Louis Blues franchise is very important. We don't want to lose that for the city of St. Louis. Well, that's the last time I spoke to him. So here we go now, like, you know. We finished the season. We couldn't go anywhere with a ping. Uh, airplanes, hotels, stick companies. Uh, they, they, we had nothing on credit because our credit was no good. And we made the playoffs. We got beat out by Montreal. Now the summer comes along. We go to meetings in June, July. And the first thing on the agenda always was, okay, Mr. Francis, where do we stand with the St. Louis Blues? You owe us $800,000 in back payments. We owed everybody money. We were in a hole to the tune of $11 million. Wow. Don't worry, I said. I'm negotiating with people, and I said, I think we should have things done here maybe within the next 30 days. Back to Chicago goes in August. Mm-hmm. Same story. John Zig is the president. Says, okay, where do we stand with St. Louis Blues, and when are you when are you going to pay us the money you owe us? I said, I'm really close on negotiations. I should maybe have something done within two weeks. Shit, I had nothing. I'd, I'd negotiate with about eight different groups like that. Uh, we weren't even close to nothing. So anyway, I go, I sit down, and about 10 minutes later, the guy who was in charge of keeping people out of her move, he came in and he said, uh, you're one on the phone right now. So I go out on the phone, and uh, the guy was a partner with the Solomons. He said, Emily says, you got to get out of there and get right back here. He says, if I get out of here, we may not be in the league. Because they're putting the pressure on us, like, you know. He says, I'll tell you why. If you don't get back here, we won't be in the league. I said, Why? Well, he said, Ross and Prino want to talk to you. I said, Ross and Prino, who are they? Well, he said, the chairman of the board said he met you at a football game. I said, oh, yeah, oh, okay. He said, you get back, and he, I'll pick you up, and I'll take you right to meet with them. So he picked me up, took me there, and I walked in the office, and here was the guy I met in the men's room, Hal Dean. Sat down, he says, okay, tell me where we are, and tell me where you are with your hockey team, what the debt is, and what we have to do to keep the franchise here. So I told him, he said, okay, we'll do all that, provide you agree to stay and run the team for us. And that's where it all fell into place with Ralph and Prina. They were the best people I ever worked for. They were great. Unbelievable. Hey, you're still not finished after that. I mean, if, if what you did with the Rangers and the Blues isn't enough, you joined the Hartford Whalers in 1983 as president GM, and you helped that team win the Adams Division regular season crown in 1986-87. What do you remember most about your time in Hartford, and do you think that city could sustain an NHL franchise again? Yeah, I do. And I'll tell you why. I went in there, and this is, a, you know, uh, St. Louis, Ralph and Prina, they got a new guy took over from Hal Dean, so he decided he was going to sell the franchise. Well, he wanted to put in the Wall Street Journal. I talked to him on that lake, you know, and I knew they want, he wanted out. He said, Ralph and Prina shouldn't own a nationally club lake. You know, so he was going to get out, and Ralph and Prina were going to get out. And Hartford, uh, my contract was ending at the end of the year, and they had found that out, and they called the league and permission to talk to me. And 
Royal Supreme says, go ahead, they can talk to me. So I agreed to go there. Anyway, before I got the job, they called me in there. They were losing $4 million a year. And they were owned by eight different insurance companies in Hartford. So I had to meet with all the different presidents. Like So we sat down. We talked for about five hours. And they had built a civic center, and they were, but they're losing $4 million a year. So back and forth, they said, you know, we don't want you to come in here and build this thing up and then leave. I said, don't worry about me. I don't want to come in here and build up, and you leave. <laughs> oh, don't worry about us. They said, that's why we want to sign you a five-year contract, okay? So I signed a five-year contract. I go in there, a lousy team. And uh, first year, we uh, cut the $4 million to $2 million. Second year, I cut it to $1 million. Third year, now we make $3 million. And the fourth year, we make $5 million. Guess what they did? They sold the team right out underneath me. Sold the team. Bang like that. The minute we made money, they sold that team, and uh, here I am now working for another who, whole new crew, you know, and I said, that's, I mean, I built three franchises, Yeah. and I said to myself, that's enough for me, but this is over my car, I'm out of here, you know, because I worked 18 hours a day for all, the, I never took a vacation in 25 years running teams in the National Hockey League, you take never a- took a vacation. But now you take a look at the state of the NHL and various franchises that are struggling, uh, especially here in New York, the Islanders. Um, do you ever get the itch to try and get back in the game? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, that was my life. That, I mean, hockey was my life from the time I was a kid. That's all I ever dreamed of, uh, getting to the national. And my dad, dad, and I were six. And I mean, if there's any way out of poverty, any way out of trying to get something, it was going to be through hockey. And I knew, like, you know, that uh, I had to really work hard. Maybe if somebody see me, I'd get a chance. I got that chance. And, I mean, I'm forever grateful, like, you know, that I was good enough to play it, good enough to be off the jobs that I had. And it's the greatest game in the world. And, I mean, oh, God, I think I could go back tomorrow and build another hockey team. But I, I passed that stage. I know now. My my wife's not well, and she's sick. Like, you know, I got I to gotta look after her. I mean, she... Brought up my two sons when I was working all the time, and I mean, I'm going to look after you from here on. But I loved hockey. I mean, that was my life. Do you still watch many games these days? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? I watch every game on TV. I got that center ice, Trace. I watch <laughs> all the games. I go down to a good 10, 12 games down here to, to watch uh, when the Rangers come in and Blackhawks come in. I was down there, you know, and they both come in. And uh, I started the Blackhawks, and I remember I left home. My mother always said, never forget where you came from. And I mean, I'll never forget who gave me my first start was the Chicago Blackhawks. And yet, we're mortal enemies because we had some of the greatest playoff series ever with the Rangers in Chicago. Wars, absolute wars. I remember oh, them well. God. Yeah. Oh, we had great playoff series with the Blackhawks. I mean, even though I hated them and they hated me probably, but uh, <laughs> I still, when Chicago come here, I go to watch them play because, uh, you know, I have friends on there like, you know, uh, people that uh, run the team, people that I've known all my life, like, you know, but uh, I'll tell you this, emphatically I'll tell you, the greatest years of my life were with the New York Rangers. It's the best city in the world, the best fans in the world. I loved it every minute. Hey, Coach, They're now, my team. Now, when you watch the games today, Okay, obviously you were a tremendous talent evaluator. You, you take a look at the trades you made. You take a look at the draft picks you you made. 
If you were building a franchise today, of all the players that you watch today, which is the guy that excites you the most that you'd probably, you know, build your team around today? Oh, God. I'd have to think about that. I'd start with the goalkeeper of the New York Rangers. <laughs> uh, gotta love that pick. All right. Yep, that's, that's a good one. Him. All right. So. That's where I start. I would start I start building teams from the goal out to two defensemen, center ice, and I go left wing, right wing. I start from the goal out right down the middle. And that's how I build baseball teams. I started like, you know, catching, pitching, shortstop, second baseman, center field. That's how you build a hockey team, down the middle. Yeah, well, you know what? The first guy you, you took when you were the Rangers GM, his number one is hanging up in the rafters. I'm sure Henrik's number will be up there, you know, when oh, all God. said and done as well. Coach, Better be. Coach, thanks so much for your time as you were the Ranger coach of my childhood, my early childhood, and my teenage years. So you really, when it boils down to it, are the man most responsible for making me the true Blue Ranger fan that I am today. So for that, I am everly grateful and even more so for spending you know this time with us tonight. Um, and, and like I said, I, I mean, to hear you speak today, there's no doubt that you can turn any franchise around in, in hockey. And, and even more so, you know, I wish the New York Mets would call you because they could certainly use your help. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, you know, my sons are Mets fans, but I was always a Yankee fan. <laughs> God, we used to have a war with my two sons. And, you know, when the Mets were good, they were Mets fans, of course. And I was a Yankee fan. We had a tough time there for 10 years, like you but, hey, like, like I said, New York is the greatest city in the world. They're the greatest fans in the world. And I was, it was an honor and a pleasure to be associated with New York. And to me, it's the greatest city in the world. And the greatest fans in the world are New Yorkers. Excellent, Coach. Have a very happy and healthy New Year, and thanks so much for your time tonight. Happy New Year to you and to all your listening audience. Thanks. The great, thanks. The great Emil Francis.